This last week I was reading a little bit about uh, the famous emperor of France, Napoleon Bonaparte. And it turns out he wasn't just a brilliant military leader and, and emperor of France in the 19th century. Turns out he was a bit of a closet theologian as well. Late in his life, he had been banished from France, and he was in exile, but he still kept in contact with some of his former generals. And one day he was having a theological discussion with one of his generals, and they were talking about Jesus. And so they had a little bit of this heated discussion. His general, his name was General Bertrand, said to Napoleon, I cannot conceive, sir, how a great man like you can believe that God ever made himself a man and took on human form. He took on a body, a face, a mouth, and eyes. He said, let Jesus be whatever you please. Let Jesus be the highest intelligence, the purest heart, the most profound legislator, and in all respects, the most singular being who has ever existed. I grant it. Still, Jesus was simply a man. He was simply a man who taught his disciples and deluded gullible people. You know how Napoleon responded to that? His famous words were, I know men, and I tell you, Jesus Christ was no mere man. Amen. I know men. I know men, but Jesus Christ was no mere man. Say those words with me. Jesus Christ was no mere man. Well, Napoleon hadn't come to that conclusion lightly, and neither did the man who was healed of blindness in John chapter 9. So turn there in your Bibles, John chapter 9. Remember what we talked about last week as we tackled the first 12 verses of the chapter. Jesus and his 12 disciples were walking through Jerusalem. They came across a man who is on the side of the road begging, and they somehow knew that he had been blind since birth. And Jesus' disciples asked him a question that evidently had been in their minds for a while. Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And remember how Jesus responded there in verse 3 of John 9. He said, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in this man's life. Then Jesus spit on the ground and made a little spit mud pie with the dirt and with his spittle. He put that mud pie on the guy's eyes and told him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. And we read in verse 7 of John 9, the man went and washed and he came home seeing. Isn't that awesome? Amazing miracle. The formerly blind beggar was beyond excited, and you would think that his friends and his neighbors were beyond excited, but they weren't, were they? A bunch of wet blankets. They well, they said, well, you couldn't be the same guy. There's no way that you're the dude we've passed day after day on the side of the road begging. You can't be the same guy. It's impossible. But he was the same guy, wasn't he? Because he had encountered the Son of God who gave him sight that he'd never had. Well, we pick up today in verse 13 of John chapter 9. If you're there, please say amen. amen. Here we are beginning in verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man's not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, How can a sinner do such miraculous signs? So the Pharisees were divided. 
Finally, they turned again to the blind man and they said, what have you to, to say about him? What have you to say? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. May God bless us as we study and most importantly, apply his word to our lives today. Well, you probably remember that the Pharisees were the religious legalists in Israel. They were the guys who prided themselves in dotting every spiritual I and crossing every religious T. Those guys oftentimes in those days were considered to be the custodians of the faith. If you wanted a precise understanding of the law of Moses, the Pharisees were your guys. Or so it was thought. The Pharisees took it upon themselves to guard not only the 613 laws that Moses had given to the people of Israel in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They didn't just guard those 613 laws if, if, if that wasn't enough. Their grandparents and their great-grandparents in the centuries leading up to Jesus' birth had added hundreds of extra laws on top of the 613. And so they added these laws and these traditions and these, uh, these just minute and very nitpicky regulations that they said every Jew had to follow if you want to please God. And Jesus referred to these extra laws and traditions as the traditions of men. Jesus, throughout his ministry, made a clear distinction between God's law and the laws of men that were heaped on top of God's law. And so if you look at what Jesus had done here in the first 12 verses, it really kind of begs a couple questions. Why did the neighbors and those that knew this blind man take it upon themselves to take him to the Pharisees? Why did they want the Pharisees to get involved? And I think there were at least a couple reasons. We'll put them on the screen here for you. Reason number one that they took the blind man to the Pharisees is because they wanted to find out if he had really been healed. Is this really the guy that we've seen on the side of the road for years, or is he some sort of look-alike imposter? And then the second reason I think they took him to the Pharisees was to determine if a sin was committed, because the people there in Jerusalem, the Jews, had been taught their entire lives that the smallest of little things was considered work on the Sabbath and was forbidden. The smallest of things. And so as they looked at this man who said he had been healed by Jesus... If they weren't supposed to do little things on the Sabbath, healing a man who's never been able to see, that seems like an awfully big darn deal, doesn't it? And so they thought, well, that's got to be work. And so was some law broken because this was the Sabbath day? You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. Now, the Jewish Pharisees were so legalistic, they had some crazy, crazy guidelines that they had added to the laws of Moses. For instance, they said that a man could not carry a single needle in any part of his clothing on the Sabbath because that needle was far too heavy. They said that if you had nails in your sandals, you couldn't wear those on the Sabbath because obviously those almost microscopic little nails that hold the sole of your sandal to the rest of your sandal, those are far too heavy to carry on the Sabbath. That's what they were saying. Some of these Pharisees argued if you had false teeth, if you could wear them or not on the Sabbath. If you had a prosthetic leg, some argued you couldn't wear it on the Sabbath. And when it came to medical attention, you could not see a doctor on the Sabbath day. In fact, they said if you did have to see a doctor because you were about to die on the Sabbath, they gave you permission to see the doctor, but they were very specific. That doctor could not heal you on the Sabbath. All he could do is keep you from getting worse. He could not help you get better. Isn't that crazy? But that's what these Pharisees taught their people day after day 
after day, they heaped these guidelines and these burdensome nitpicky laws on top of the people. And so in verse 16, some of those Pharisees, when the man says, hey, he opened my eyes, he told me to go wash, I washed, and now I can see. In verse 16, the first group of Pharisees say, this man Jesus is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Well, what are they talking about? Well, they're talking about those nitpicky extra rules that had been added in the centuries leading up to Jesus' birth. It's really pretty sad. I've kind of summarized this for you. We're going to put it on the screen for you. It kind of boils down to this. God had created the Sabbath day as a gift to his followers, and he intended it to be the best day of the week. Isn't that good news? God intended the Sabbath to be the best day of the week, the day to rest from our day-to-day work, to gather and worship God with our families, and to serve him and others. And we go on to say this. We'll put it on the screen for you. The Jewish leaders had taken the gift of the Sabbath day and they twisted it into a heavy burden. They made it into the worst day of the week. The Pharisees added to God's simple Sabbath day command 39 different categories or types of work that they said were unlawful on the Sabbath. They added these 39 categories and each of those categories had these very specific laws within that category. And so a few examples, some of these categories they had that said don't do this kind of work on the Sabbath, some of these categories really did make sense. Uh, For example, they said, well, you can't be plowing on the Sabbath day. You you can't be doing that. Uh, You can't be plowing on the Sabbath day. Uh, You can't be planting seeds on the Sabbath day. So some of these had to do with legitimate manual labor that, you know, by the sweat of your brow, you complete that task. That made sense because God wanted people to rest from their work on the Sabbath day. But others of these were just, as we talked about a moment ago, so, so nitpicky. And so there were a few in particular. If we ask the question, which of Jesus, uh, what in his, his healing of this man born blind was breaking some of their nitpicky laws? If you look at these 39 extra categories, which I did this last week, I found that there were three of these categories of Sabbath traditions that Jesus did in fact break when he healed a man born blind. First of all, he broke number 23. Number 23 is no kneading. As as far as ladies, you know, like kneading the yeast into the dough. You weren't allowed to do that on the Sabbath, according to the Pharisees. So obviously he spits on the ground and kneads that spit and dirt into mud pies, right? So he broke that one, number 23. He also broke their first of the 39 categories of work that he shouldn't be doing. He carried something on the Sabbath. Because obviously, if you're not supposed to carry something as heavy as a tack that holds the sole of your sandal to the rest of your sandal, you can't be lifting up these very heavy mud pies that probably weighed a fraction of an ounce. You couldn't lift those, right? So they would say he broke that law, number one, he was carrying. And then they would say he broke number eight because he told the guy to go wash in the pool of Siloam. You're not supposed to wash on the Sabbath day. And in addition to these 39, they had this other law that said you can't even use spit to promote healing on the Sabbath. Remember last week we talked about how most cultures over the course of most of human history believed that human saliva had some healing properties. And so they specifically said if you're using spit, to even bring comfort to your dry and achy eyes, you can't even use enough spit to cover your eyelids because that is work on the Sabbath. So in a sense, Jesus broke four of the Pharisees' traditions. 
He was promoting kneading of mud and carrying and washing and using saliva to promote a healing. And so these Jews, at least the first part of that group of Pharisees, they did not like what Jesus was doing. But then there's this other group, according to verse 16, some more Pharisees says, well, this man Jesus, how could he heal someone if he is a sinner? If he's a sinner, how could he do such things? And so this argument develops between the Pharisees. Some say he's a sinner. Some say he's a miracle worker. It seems like those that were saying he was a sinner were a greater number than the other group. But they're arguing back and forth. Finally, in verse 17, they turn to the man himself, the blind man, and say, what do you have to say about Jesus? After all, it was you who had your eyes opened. It was you who he healed. What do you have to say? It's almost like this guy that they really didn't care about. They used him as a tiebreaker. We want to know who you think is correct. What do you have to say about Jesus? And notice what he says in verse 17. He says what? He is a prophet. Huh. I mentioned last Sunday that this formerly blind man was not yet a believer and follower of Christ. It's kind of cool. If you go back to verse 10, he's excited about his healing and he's telling his neighbors that he's been healed and he can see for the first time in his life. And they ask him, how how is that possible? How were you healed? And in verse 11, he says, the man Jesus healed me. He refers to Jesus as the man, right? But now in verse 17, what does he call Jesus? He is a prophet. Is he saved? Not yet. But you see his trajectory is moving in the right direction. He's getting closer, isn't he? Because Jesus is no longer in his mind just a man. Now he's calling him a prophet. That's a big deal because who else was called in Scripture a prophet? The likes of Moses, who parted the Red Sea. Elijah. And after Elijah, remember who the prophet was? Remember? His apprentice was Elisha. Performed more miracles than anyone else in Old Testament times as far as we know. And so there were other prophets like Daniel and Isaiah and Jeremiah. So if you're calling Jesus a prophet... Man, he's got some pretty good company. This man's not saved yet, but he's moving in the right direction. It's kind of like that last hidden gift a child receives on Christmas. And he's trying to find it hidden in the room. And what does dad say? Warmer, 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 warmer. And eventually he gets to the spot. That's this blind man here. He's not saved yet, but he's getting closer. He's getting warmer. Well, It's pretty amazing what happens here as this man begins to be grilled by these Jewish leaders who are very intimidating. They're very intimidating men, but he stands strong. Notice what continues in verse 18, still in John chapter 9. The Jews still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that he now can see? We know that he's our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind, but how he can now see or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He'll answer for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. Well, the the Pharisees make it pretty clear that 
They didn't think that blind man who had been healed was credible himself. They didn't trust anything he had to say about his healing or about Jesus. They didn't believe his testimony. And so they have this discussion evidently amongst themselves. Who can we get to discredit this man's story? Who can we get to discredit? Someone that we know would recognize this man, would never mix him up with any lookalike. Someone disprove that what he's saying is true because we've got to get this guy to shut up. Because there's this buzz around this part of Jerusalem that this blind guy has been healed by Jesus. We've got to shut him up. Who can discredit him? And they thought, his parents, they live in town. Get his parents. Bring him in here. And that's what they do. They bring in the man's parents, the blind man's parents. They bring him in and they ask them three questions. They ask him three questions. Is this your son? Was he born blind? And how can he see now? And I want you to notice that the three parents are very, very careful in how they answer those questions. John gives us a little inside information in verse 22. John tells us that they were afraid of the Jewish leaders, for already the leaders had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. In other words, they would be excommunicated from the church. They would be kicked out of the synagogue, refused entrance at any point thereafter, and they wouldn't be able to take part in the religious community there in Jerusalem. So that was a big deal for a Jewish person living in Jerusalem. So notice in verses 20 and 21, those parents respond to the three questions. Question number one, is this really your son? The answer is yes, we know he is our son. Second question, was he in fact born blind? Yes, he was. He was born blind. Notice they're just sticking sticking to the facts. Now the third question, the kicker, how is he able to see now? Notice their response. How he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. Now John doesn't tell us if this man and his parents were not on very good terms. But I kind of get the impression mom and dad weren't the biggest fans of their boy. I don't know if they were embarrassed about him being blind as a beggar. I'm not sure, but they don't seem to be your normal, loving, supportive parents because they know that they're going to get kicked out of the synagogue if they speak up for him or speak up for Jesus. So notice how they very quickly just stick to the facts and pass the buck. So the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, are basically saying, we're looking for someone to pin the blame on. They say, don't pin the blame on us. If you want to pin the blame on someone, pin it on our son. We're looking for someone to excommunicate from the synagogue today. Hey, don't look at us if you want to excommunicate someone. If you want to excommunicate someone, look at our son. You notice how they're doing this and stepping away and allowing their son to fend for themselves. And parents, ask yourself the question, could I ever do what these parents did? Some of you parents would say, not in a million years. If my son was being falsely accused of something, if he was being unjustly attacked and threatened, there is not a team of wild horses that could keep me from jumping in there and defending my son. Amen? But these parents wash their hands and they step away because evidently their good standing in the local synagogue meant more to them than what would happen to their son in the fallout from him taking a stand for Jesus. Well, we don't know for sure, but that's kind of a guess on my part. We don't know if they were in good standing, but one way or another, they didn't stick by their son's side. Why did the Pharisees interrogate the healed man's parents? What was the whole point of it? 
Was it so they, they could find out more information to praise Jesus? Find out more facts and be able to celebrate and share the good news? Not at all. I think Chuck Swindoll says it really well. He writes these words. This was not a search for truth. This was a deliberate sifting of facts in which inconvenient evidence was set aside in favor of what would be the most damning case against the Pharisee's enemy, who was Jesus. This was all a ploy on their part to discredit the blind man and to come after Jesus. Isn't that sad? The parents weren't there to give more pertinent information to help the Pharisees come to faith. They were just there so they could find some half-truths, so they could find some twisted versions of the facts so that they could somehow discredit this man who had been healed by Jesus. It's so sad. The Pharisees wanted to discredit him. They wanted to attack Jesus. Well, the healed man's first interrogation with the Pharisees hadn't gone as the Pharisees had hoped. He ends up saying, Jesus is a prophet. Their interrogation of the blind man's parents, that didn't go so well either because they didn't give him any new information that strengthened their case against Jesus. In fact, the more the man and his parents were interrogated, the more what Jesus had done became indisputable. The more evidence they got, the more clear it was. Jesus did, in fact, do the impossible. He healed a man that had been born blind, something Elijah had never done, something Elisha had never done, something even Moses had never done. Jesus, the more facts they gathered, it became more and more clear that this was nothing shy of one of the greatest miracles they'd ever heard of. Well, the Pharisees are as stubborn as they come, so they weren't going to let up yet. Verse 24, we pick up here in chapter 9. The man replied, or excuse me, a second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God, they said. We know this man, Jesus, is a sinner. He replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, Uh, What did he do to you? How how did he open your eyes? The man answered, I've told you already and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Oh, you know they're going to love that, don't you? Then they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple. We're disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at your birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. In other words, they threw him out of the synagogue. This is such a a powerful interaction between this healed man and these Jewish Pharisee leaders. I find myself just cheering the guy on. Go get him, tiger. Just want to cheer on this guy, don't you? The boldness, the courage in front of some of the most intimidating leaders in Jerusalem. It's pretty remarkable. In verse 24, the Pharisees try to bait the healed man with their statement. Give glory to God. We know this man, Jesus, is a sinner. They figure that if they can get the man to admit that Jesus is a sinner, they'll have a leg to stand on. Aha, even he's admitted that Jesus is a sinner. Now we've got some room to force this counter-argument. But the man doesn't bite at their bait, does he? Notice verse 25, the healed man, he doesn't take the bait, he sticks to the facts. 
Whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind and now I see. He gets back to the facts of the matter, doesn't he? They're trying to sidetrack him from the facts. Nope, he takes him right back to the facts. I was blind and now I see. Then in verse 26, the Pharisees asked the healed man the same question that he'd already answered twice. He answered this question back when his neighbors were grilling him early in the chapter in verse 10. He had answered the question during his first interrogation before the Pharisees. And now they asked the question again in verse 27 or in verse 26. What did he do for you? How did he open your eyes? And you've just got to love the healed man's response there in verse 27. He says, I've told you already. You didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? I love that answer. Let me ask you, when a, a man is being intimidated and being grilled unfairly, by powerful leaders who have the ability to make his life very, very uncomfortable? How do most men respond to that? Do they cave to the pressure? Or do they dig in their heels and take the punishment? Most people? Most people cave, don't they? Most people cave. This man had sat on the side of the road for who knows how many days and months and years. And he does not cave. You've got to admire this guy. He's not a Christian yet. He's not saved yet. But man, is he getting close to making that decision for Jesus. And you've got to admire his courage. He's, in fact, at this point, more courageous than most Christians in America. So courageous. He had the opportunity to keep his good standing membership at the local synagogue. That wasn't the most important thing to him. He was going to speak the truth about what Jesus Christ had done in his life. You want to become his disciples too? <laughs> Do you want to become a, a disciple of Jesus? The Pharisees snap back in verses 28 and 29. You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. And the Holy Spirit must have been given this healed man an extra measure of boldness because he kicks into full-on evangelist mode here in verses 30 through 33. Look again at what he says beginning in verse 30. Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners. He listens to godly men who do his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. He's got a little Billy Graham in that message, doesn't he? He's got a little Greg Laurie preacher going on with what he's saying to these Jewish religious leaders. Well, he gives them truth. And the healed man is absolutely right. He's, tr he's right. God doesn't listen to unrepentant sinners. We see that throughout the Old Testament. A couple quick examples. If you look at Psalm 66, verse 18, it says this. Psalm 66, 18, it says, If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. You go over to the next book, book of Proverbs. King Solomon says this. Solomon says, The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. And so the healed man is right. Nobody had ever heard of a man being healed who had been born blind. And he was right that God would not listen to Jesus if Jesus was a sinner and wasn't sent by God and wasn't, in fact, God in the flesh. Sadly, the Pharisees refused to listen to the truth. They had no interest in facts. They had no interest in logic. So they resorted to cheap insults and violence. In verse 34, they yell at the healed man, You were steeped in sin at your birth. How dare you lecture us? And they tossed him out of the synagogue. Now let's finish the chapter picking up in verse 35. Jesus heard 
that they had thrown the man out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? Who is he, sir? The man asked, tell me so that I may believe in him. Isn't that good? Verse 37, Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment, I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what? Are you blind too? Are we blind too? Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Despite the fact that the healed man has just been criticized and slandered and kicked out of his synagogue and kicked to the curb, he hangs on Jesus' every word. Do you see that here? Do you see his willingness to believe? Jesus asks him in verse 35, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he responds by saying, who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. And as soon as Jesus reveals that he himself is the Son of Man, the promised Savior of the world, notice how the healed man immediately responds in verse 38. He says, Lord, I believe. You see what he does next? Lord, I believe, and he worships him. Whenever Old Testament or New Testament, an angel appears to a follower of God, and that angel appears in its glory, so often you find the first reaction people have is to be scared to death. But it's not uncommon for the next reaction to be for that person to fall down and begin to worship that angel. Every single time that happens in the Bible without fail, the angel will say, no, 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 no. I am a created being like you. Do not worship me. Worship God alone. Every time Jesus Christ has someone fall and worship him, he allows them to. Why is that? He ain't no angel, Jehovah's Witnesses, right? He ain't no angel. He's the son of God. God in human flesh. Why is he worshipped? Because he is worthy of all worship. He's the creator of this universe. He's the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He is the God of all creation. And so he is worshipped here by this man. So we ask the question once again, is this healed man saved? And at this point in time, I believe we can say, yes, he is. Verse 11, he said, Jesus is a man. Verse 17, what do you say about him? He said, he is a prophet. And at this point, why is he worshipping Jesus Christ? Because he knows he is much more than a prophet. He is the son of God. He is Jesus Christ, the creator of this world. And so he bows and he worships Jesus Christ. He is now a saved man. And it's kind of interesting, this little, rea- this little interaction that takes place in the final few verses of the chapter between Jesus and some of those religious leaders. And notice what Jesus says. Jesus says something about judgment here. You see what he says? Verse 39, for judgment I have come into the world so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Now, some people take issue with what Jesus says here in verse 39 because of what he had said to Nicodemus in chapter 3. We all know John 3:16. Jesus said to Nicodemus, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. But the very next verse, John 3:17, Jesus says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, 
but to save the world through him. You could say it this way. God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but to save the world through him. So in John three seventeen, Jesus makes it clear. I didn't come to judge the world. But here in John 9, he says in verse 39, for judgment, I have come into the world. So which is it, Jesus? Are you talking through both sides of your mouth? And the answer is no. What does he mean? Well, let me summarize it for you this way. We'll put it on the screen for you. Jesus came into the world to offer salvation. But if you refuse to let him save you, one day he will judge you. Make sense? Mercy triumphs over judgment. But if you reject God's mercy, the only thing left for you is judgment. We talked about this a few weeks ago. What is the just punishment for our sin here on earth? It's really an eternal punishment in hell, isn't it? That's the just punishment for the sin we commit here on earth. And so judgment is what we deserve. Jesus Christ came to place mercy in front of judgment. Amen. But if you choose to reject Jesus's mercy, what's left for you? Judgment. It's the only thing left. So did Jesus come into the world to judge the world? Is this why he came? No, it isn't. This is why he came to bring mercy. But make no mistake about it. If you reject mercy, there is no other way to make it to heaven. You reject mercy. The only thing left for you is, is judgment. So in a sense, Jesus did come to bring judgment because as he offers mercy if you accept his mercy he will forgive you for your sins and his judgment upon you will be not guilty praise god for that that's a judgment as well not guilty if you accept his mercy that's going to be his judgment not guilty if you reject his mercy his judgment is going to be guilty he's going to open those books all of your sins everything you've said everything you've done everything you've even thought that was against god is going to be recorded in those books. And on the day of judgment, it'll be crystal clear that you are guilty as charged because we're all sinners desperately in need of the mercy of God. And so he did, in a sense, come for judgment. But the bigger message is, in the book of John, he came first to bring mercy, to bring grace, to offer forgiveness. Well, the Pharisees could see, but they were actually more blind to the truth than the beggar had ever been. We get to the end of this chapter and praise God for that beggar. He had been physically blind, but now he could physically see. And even a greater miracle, he had been spiritually blind, but now he could spiritually see. Sadly, the Pharisees could see with their physical eyes, but were completely blind with their hearts. As we go into our life lessons, I'm going to do something that I don't think I have ever done. Every week, those of you that are a part of Impact know that I try to give us some very practical life lessons to pull from the passage we've just studied to apply to our lives. We put them on the back of your handout. You can fill in the blanks, and you can take those with you. It's designed to kind of summarize and give us some very practical applications. I don't think I've ever done this before in the 24 years I've been a pastor, though. We're going to pull our life lessons from a completely different chapter. Isn't that kind of weird? We've just studied John 9, and we're not going to pull the lessons from John 9. We're going to pull them from Psalm 27. Why on earth would we do that? Let me ask you this. Have you ever had a point when you've studied God's word or listened to a sermon and and heard the the scriptures read to you and you said to yourself, wow, it's like it was written just for me. Ever had that happen? Isn't that amazing how God's word is living and active, sometimes speaks directly to us? I had one of our attenders come up a few months ago and say, hey, Dane, when did you secretly install video cameras in my house? I'm like, what? I didn't do that. And then it hit me. Oh, okay. You mean the message really hit close to home. It spoke just to her. It's like I had crafted that sermon just for her. I had no idea what she was going through. You know, I'm not some peep. 
I just try to study the word of God and he gives the word. Amen. So sometimes you read it's like it's just for you. You're going to be blown away, I think, in the next couple minutes as we look at Psalm 27. Psalm 27 was written a thousand years before this blind man was born. It was written a thousand years before he was born, but it's as if he wrote it himself as he was dealing with his interactions with the Pharisees here in John 9. You're going to see what I mean. We're going to go through Psalm 27 very quickly. I want you to turn there in your Bibles, and we're going to pull these three life lessons from this great psalm. Listen to these verses and see if this rings true with the blind man's situation in John 9. Psalm 27, verse 1. The Lord is my light. The Lord is my what? What was Jesus showing through this miracle? Proving that he is the light of the world, right? The Lord is my light and my? By the time we got to John 9, the man was saved. The very first line in this chapter resonates with the man's situation. We go on to read, Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then will I be confident. Does this not sound like this blind man or not? Isn't that cool? Quick life lesson from that. Lesson number one, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Therefore, be courageous when you're under attack. Read that with me. The Lord is my light and my... Come on, folks. Read it like you mean it. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Therefore, be courageous when you're under attack. The blind beggar's eyes and heart were both opened by Jesus. Because of Jesus, he could see the physical light with his physical eyes, and he could see the spiritual light of salvation with his spiritual eyes. And having been healed by Jesus... He was emboldened by Christ. Continuing in verse 4 of Psalm 27. One thing I ask of the Lord. This is what I seek. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. He's just been kicked out of the synagogue. That's okay if I'm not in the house of worship in the synagogue. As long as I can dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Amen. He's like, I've been kicked out of better places than this. That's okay. As long as I'm in the house of the Lord. I want to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord with these new eyes of mine. I want to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above my enemies who surround me. At his tabernacle will I sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, O Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says if you seek his face, your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do Do not reject me or forsake me, O God, my Savior. Oh, when that man was grilled for a second time, tell us what happened. Tell us what happened. Well, Jesus opened my eyes. There were many responses the Pharisees could have had. They could have said something like this. That's amazing. That's amazing. How does it feel to be able to see for the first time in your life? They could have asked him the question, tell us, uh, you've only been able to see for a couple, three hours now. What's the best thing you've seen so far? That question would have made sense, right? They could have asked him, of all the things you've dreamed, if you ever had your eyesight, of all the things you've ever dreamed of being able to see with your own two eyes, what do you most want to see? What are you most looking forward to see? If they had asked the man that question, how would he have answered According to Psalm 27, he would have answered by saying, this is what I desire to gaze at the face of the Lord. Isn't that awesome? 
He saw the temple for the first time. He saw the water in the pool of Siloam for the first time. He saw the roads he used to sit and beg on for the first time. All of this he was seeing for the first time, even the face of his own mother, seeing it for the very first time, and yet he wanted to gaze, I believe, at the beauty of the Lord. Wow. Isn't that something you long for in heaven? Oh, yeah, I want to meet Paul. I want to meet Daniel. That was one tough dude, man, snoozing with the lions. That guy's pretty awesome. But more than anything else, I want to see the face of my Savior, Jesus Christ. I want to see the face of Jesus Christ. So lesson number two, when man kicks you out, Jesus will take you in. Amen? Any of you ever been kicked out? Yep. Some of you walk out. I've been kicked out of better places than this. When man kicks you out, Jesus will take you in. So desire him, call out to him, and seek his face. Say that with me. When man kicks you out, Jesus will take you in. So desire him, call out to him, and seek his face. You look at these verses between verses 4 through 9, so many resonate with the blind man's situation. Verse 4, one thing I ask, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Verse 5, for in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. That's exactly what Jesus did in John 9. Verse 8, my heart says, if you seek his face, your face, Lord, I will seek. And then finishing the chapter, starting in verse 10, though my father and mother forsake me. Whoa. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Written a thousand years before this man was born. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Amen. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes for false witnesses rise up against me, breathing out violence. I am still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Lesson number three from these final five verses. Once Jesus takes you in, you will see the goodness of the Lord. So be strong, take heart, and wait for the Lord. I want to hear you speaking these wonderful words. Read this with me. Once Jesus takes you in, you will see the goodness of the Lord. So be strong, take heart, and wait for the Lord. Most of you in the room have made a decision to accept Jesus as your Savior and Lord, but some of you are going through some stuff. And you've been praying that God would deliver you from that stuff, that he would take you through it, and it seems like either your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling or God is really dragging his feet. And I want you to hear these words from Psalm 27. Be patient and wait for the Lord. Amen? Take heart. Wait for the Lord. His answer is coming. His timing is just much different than your timing. He's much more patient than you are, right? So what seems to be dragging his feet is the patience of God. His timing is perfect. Now, some of you may have never made a decision for Jesus. In a group this size with the number of people in the room and the number of people watching online, there are bound to be at least a few who have never made a decision for Jesus Christ. And I want you to understand that if you drag your feet too long, you will run out of opportunities to accept Jesus Christ. Praise God, by the time we got to the end of John 9, this blind man who had been healed gave his heart to Jesus Christ. You may not ever be back in this place again. I can't guarantee that you're going to be alive tomorrow or next week or next month. That's why the Word of God says today is the day of salvation. So I encourage you on this decision Sunday. If you need to make a decision for Jesus Christ, make that decision today. Some of you may need to make that first-time decision. You've never put Jesus in the driver's seat of your life. 
Others of you may have made that decision at some point, but no one said, hey, you need to be baptized. And so we've got the baptistry set up out front. Some of you need to be baptized today. We've got fresh towels, robes, whatever's needed. The only thing we're waiting for is for you to be ready and say, I'm, I'm going to do it today. Some of you may be baptized believers and followers of Christ, and you've been coming to Impact, and you say, you know what, I've been coming, but I haven't committed to this church. And maybe you need to make that commitment of membership and say, you know what, I just want to publicly say I want this to be my church home. I'm going to continue attending. I'm going to continue giving. I'm going to continue serving and growing with this church body. And we're going to do this thing together. I believe God's called me to this church. Today's a great day to make that decision. We had one guy in the first service uh, come and make that decision, and that's awesome. And he's a baptized believer and says, you know, today's the day. I'm going to commit to this church. And so membership is not something that's spelled out in the New Testament. It's just kind of something we do to publicly identify this. This is my church, and I believe God has called me here. And we don't make you jump through a lot of hoops. We just ask that you be a believer and follower of Christ, baptized into him, and ready to commit to him and serve through this church. So if you have that decision, today's a great day to make it. I'm going to close this in prayer. We're going to have our prayer counselors up here in just a moment to close the service. And if you need prayer or if you have a decision to make for Jesus Christ, we invite you to come. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we do love you. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, for this powerful, powerful teaching. Thank you for what you did in that man's life. And some of us may be moving in that right trajectory, moving in that right direction. We, we know that you were a man. We don't doubt that. We know that you were at the very least a prophet. We don't doubt that. You weren't just an average run-of-the-mill guy. But, Lord, I pray that this would be the day for some in this room and some online to say, I declare, I confess that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of the living God. And beginning today, I will worship him. I will trust in him and serve him for the rest of my life. Lord, I pray that if there's some here that need to make that decision right now, they would join me in prayer saying, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner in need of your mercy. Please forgive me. Please wash my sin away. I commit to place you in the driver's seat of my life. I'm not asking you just to be my Savior. I'm asking you to be my Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.